0: Welcome to episode 105. Today, Kelly Boswell joins us to talk about her book called Every Kid a Writer. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful. Writing is one of the most difficult parts of my job. I always feel that I'm a subpar writing teacher because I basically assign students writing tasks that are scaffolded with sentence frames and sentence starters, key vocabularies for them to use, and it's even organized in a particular way. Yes, that's a language specialist in me. Yet I know this does not inspire a love of writing. It simply helps students finish a writing task. My approach most likely dampens at best and enchains at worse. In this episode, prolific author, consultant and teacher Kelly Boswell will share her no fuss approach to writing holistically. So every kid can become a writer. Now on to today's podcast. I'm always excited to have expert teachers, in particular, expert teachers who write for Heinemann on the podcast. So I'm so honored uh, today to have another master teacher from Heinemann share with us on the podcast. Ms. Kelly Boswell, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, I am delighted. Would you tell us about a story that has really guided your practice?
1: Oh, like so many teachers, um, there are so many, it's hard to find just one story that has really guided my practice. But the one that comes to mind first is when I was a first grade teacher years and years ago, and I was just kind of starting my journey as a teacher of writing and trying some different things, giving kids choice and voice and trying to confer with children and be positive. And I had taught a mini lesson. I thought it was fairly solid. I sent the kids off to write and I got around to a child, we'll call him Chris, and he had taken a black marker and had basically just colored the entire sheet with a black marker. There was about this much room left. And I wanted to say, you know, Chris, did you not see my beautiful mini lesson? What is going on here? But because I was exploring my role as a writing teacher, I I knelt down next to him and I said, tell me about your piece. And he looked up at me and he said, it's dirt. And I immediately thought the next words out of my mouth are going to be so important for this student and for me and our relationship. And so I looked, I knelt down, I got really quiet and I said, you know, as a reader, I had a hard time knowing that was dirt. What could you do to help your reader? And he looked up at me and said, I could add some words. And so with the last little space he had left, he wrote DRT and he took some markers and added some worms to the black space. And I felt that that moment really was a shift for me in how I approached writing, how I approached children, how I approached my role as a teacher of writing. I I think it was pivotal for me to really see students, instead of looking for, you know, he didn't follow directions, he didn't do what the mini lesson was about, it was more like, what is this child trying? What is the good work I can get behind? And how can I support this child in the next step forward? And then always, what is it? Someone has said, um, relationship trumps compliance you know, it's the relationship with the kid is more important than did he follow the thing I taught him in any lesson. Right. So that was a real shift for me. Right.
0: Because we all have moments in our own childhood schooling experience when there was something that the teacher did that stuck with us. Right. I still remember the moments that really stung me and things the teachers did. I'm sure they were trying to discipline me because I was a hot mess. But I still remember those really painful experiences more than I, I remember this loving experience that outweighed the other ones. I still remember that. And you. I think you did a really great thing to say, I see what you're trying to do. Let me celebrate that. And because you did that, you're speaking to teachers or language learners right now. You're speaking to teachers of multilinguals who sometimes they try and their attempts are met with revisions and corrections and scorn but you're modeling for us to say, celebrate their attempts. So you're speaking to our family then, Kelly.
1: Absolutely, I think we learn primarily by building on our strengths. So it's important for all students, students learning additional languages, students on individual education plans, all students to know what they're doing well so that they can build on that, that's how we learn.
0: Right, because imagine now if you were to say, no, 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 that I'm not gonna accept. Right. imagine how Chris would feel and how, how would he remember his attempts, right?
1: Yeah. He's not going to try again the next day. That's for sure. Right.
0: Yeah. If, I think the goppen Institute said that they're, they're relationship experts, right? And they say that if relationship like is an investment account, we have to have more deposits in the account than withdrawals. Yep. But a withdrawal is worth, one withdrawal is worth five deposits.
1: Yeah. So we have that's why at the beginning of the year, I encourage teachers when you're conferring with students, it's just compliment and move on, compliment and move on, compliment and move on. Because you've got to put those deposits in. Otherwise, your checks are going to bounce when you go to make a withdrawal. And then you have a bunch of kids who don't like to write or they just try to avoid writing because it's their only way of self-preservation is to not write at all.
0: Right. Because it's hard it is hard. Right. And then to have someone, I mean, like we, the good intentions behind teacher want teachers wanting to uh, guide and correct really leads to kids feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough.
1: Yep.
0: I don't want to be judged anymore. So I'm not going to write.
1: Yeah. The best advice I have for teachers is if you haven't done this in a while, take a class take a basket weaving class or a Thai cooking class or a knitting class or a, a karate class so that you never lose that feeling of what it feels like to be a learner yes. and how vulnerable that is. Yes. And then how it feels when someone comes and corrects versus when someone comes and gently nudges but it, with a lot of encouragement because that all translates to good teaching
0: because they know like, oh, wow, I'm being corrected. This is a really hard experience. It's kind of like when we ask teachers to learn another language, they're like, whoa, so this is what it's like. Or during professional learning sessions when, when the facilitator is making us do things and the, te- the facilitator is saying, I have a question, please answer it and nobody answers. That's smooth. Um So thank you for sharing that story about Chris. Would you now tell us about the seed for the story because every story has a seed. Yeah,
1: this book was really born out of years and years of working with teachers around the US um, and abroad, actually, when I taught in Japan. And teachers always come to me with this question, this is all great. But what do you do for those kids who don't like to write? And sometimes teachers mistakenly call them reluctant writers. But what I found in becoming a writer myself is that kids are not reluctant writers. They're just writers who sometimes experience reluctance. And every writer I know who's written books experiences reluctance. We are professional procrastinators. We clean our fridge. We remember that we need to make a dentist appointment. We check Facebook. We have all these tricks to keep us on task and doing the work of writing. So I knew that the problem did not lie with the students. I knew that it was how we were framing those students who appeared as if they were reluctant, that was the problem. And I really felt like the more I wrote myself, the more I realized that the students in my classroom who appeared reluctant were just writers who were experiencing normal everyday writing challenges. So I set about to write a book that really just produced or or set forth six really simple, streamlined, unfussy strategies that I've seen in other classrooms that I've used in my classroom. I've done lessons that really can help kids re-engage with writing with enthusiasm and even joy. So that was the purpose of this book was really to answer those questions. What about those kids who appear like they don't like to write?
0: Again, you're speaking to the heart of language teachers because you said we, when we reframe the way we talk about kids, we see our instruction differently. When we see our kids differently, we teach in a different way. So instead of saying, this is a reluctant kid, they say, this kid is experiencing reluctance. Yeah. Right? It, but that doesn't mean they're not reluctant. That's right.
1: right? Yeah. The problem doesn't lie with the student. <laughs> That's what I've really found in this book. We have a lot of input into how kids approach writing. Yes,
0: exactly. So it's less finger pointing. Yep. Right? And it's more like uh, mirror looking. Yeah. Like, what can we do? Exactly. So you had me at the number six. I was like, oh, yes, six manageable strategies. Can you um, tell us about that? uh, that?
1: Yeah. So I basically designed the book into six chapters that focus on six really simple, unfussy strategies. So they range from things like just providing a daily space for kids to write, offering choice, using mentors and modeling rethinking assessment keeping conventions um, in their proper place
0: yeah i see let's talk about one of your first chapters which is about uh, using mentor texts
1: yeah so in this chapter i really set up part something to think about how mentors and modeling work together to engage students um oftentimes when i invite teachers to think about using mentor texts. They kind of think, oh gosh, I've got to come up with a mentor text for every single lesson, which isn't true. If you have a favorite book that your kids love to read, you can come back to that book again and again for different teaching points. And then the other thing to consider is think about books that have been authored by students in your classroom, especially if you're working with multilingual students then who are using translanguaging, who are using various languages within their writing, those can now become mentor texts for other students so that they see their language, all the languages that they own as an asset and that they can be used in their writing. So not just using published books, but also using books written by kids as, a, as an idea of this is what it could look like when you're writing, and then the modeling piece is this is how you get there. So watch me as a teacher as I look at this, this writer, see something that this writer is doing. I want to try that in mind. Watch me as I kind of crack open my thinking, make that invisible process visible so that you can see what I'm thinking as I'm trying to emulate something that this writer is doing.
0: Right, and I love that concept of using student examples as mentor texts, because yes, it's wonderful to see JK Rowling's example, but it's so great to see Chris's example. Yep. Right, and it's and it and this is the SEL part where we really say, hey, we are recognizing what you can do, and then we are uh, celebrating you. And that he's going to feel like he wants to participate more. And that label of like, I'm not a good writer, that narrative of I'm not, I'm not a good writer, starts to melt away and disintegrate.
1: Yeah, right. absolutely. I think when you use student samples, you're saying we're all writers. When I share a sample by someone like Mo Willems or JK Rowling, I call them by their first name. So that I can say this is so and so, you know, this is Chris, this is Max, this is Jenny. So they see they're just people, they're just writers, just like you. But I think it's important for them to see both published work and student work so they can see what's possible in their own writing.
0: Right. And this is another way of just motivating students to say, hey, we are a community of writers. This is, I guess, in another way of saying is, it gives the voice, it spotlights students who is often voiceless. Yeah. Because the kids who are, who are often participating the most, I've I notice often the readers, the writers, but yet the ones who are don't have the hand up often, also have things to contribute. And just slightly showing students uh, their student samples, it's like a hand raise.
1: It's a spot. Absolutely, absolutely. You're blessing that work. And then I think what's so powerful is to take a piece written by a student like that say, this is something I admire in this writer's piece that I'm going to try in mine. So the teacher is now looking at student work to guide his or her own writing. That's powerful.
0: So besides uh, using a text, can, we can go back again and again. And I thank you for um, allowing teachers to say, you don't have to make a mentor text for each single writing uh, piece. So they're going to feel relieved. Yeah. How else do you use mentor texts?
1: So I typically start with what am I trying to teach, right? So if I'm trying to teach students how to create a brochure, then I'm going to go to the airport and grab a bunch of brochures so they can see what actual brochures look like. If I'm going to ask kids to create an instructional poster about something that like in the class, like in the school, how to wash hands or how to wear your mask. Or if I want kids to be creating writing that's going to be displayed in the classroom, like a poster, then I'm going to show them posters from TSA or from the the place where you go to get your license or you know at the dentist they usually have some sort of instructional poster so it depends on what I'm teaching but whatever I'm teaching I want to say where do I see that in the real world and how can I bring that in so they can see the features of this kind of text and then together with the kids we say you know what like if we're doing an instructional poster we say Let's look at all these posters. What makes a good instructional poster? So the kids are coming up with the features. Oh, it's got a title. It sometimes has numbered steps. It has pictures and words. It uses bossy language. And then that that chart becomes an anchor chart for our learning as we're creating our own. We can go back to that chart. Some well-meaning but misguided teachers say, "Okay, I'm going to show you how to make an instructional poster. Make sure it has a title. You got to. You're going to have three points for, <laughs> for you know." But instead, saying, "This is where we see this kind of writing. Let's explore it together. Let's do some inquiry. What makes a good piece? Let's make a chart. And now let's start our own." So you can do that with anything: commercials, narratives, memoirs, poetry. I want to. I want to look for those pieces of writing out in the real world and bring them in.
0: I feel like this is like teacher therapy because like I feel rushed as a social studies teacher. I'm like, you have to produce this piece of writing. Here's what I expect. Here are the bullet points. Here's the topic sentence. I feel so rushed, and I'm like, I'm just rushing you through writing. When instead of saying like, oh, here is a here is a uh, template. Here's a infographic. Here's a real thing from examples that we see. Let's use an inquiry approach to learn about them to look at the features. And I'm like, oh, yes, I need to do this more. So thank you.
1: It's so powerful because you're giving them a lifetime skill. How many of us have gotten ready to um, write a resume? Right. What do we do? We go on Google and we look at other resumes. If we're writing a cover letter for someone, we typically look at other cover letters. So it's a skill that we want our writers to use the rest of their lives because we're not going to be there to tell them here's what it needs to have. They need to see what are these kinds of pieces of writing have and how can I include those in my piece.
0: Right. When I think about our job as teachers, regardless of what your role is, our job is to help kids become independent. And the way they become independent is becoming dependent on strategies. And so a strategy that you just gave kids or a skill that you just gave kids to help them is that to see the world and see the world as text. right. Right.
1: Yeah, so I was helping a uh, secondary student recently write a biography. He said step number one, go to the library and, and grab a bunch of biographies and just kind of read them and notice how are they structured? Because how they're structured is gonna help you structure yours. So that's a strategy he can use forever. Right,
0: and this is a strategy that all teachers can use, not just English teachers. Yep. Okay. let's move to the next concept of uh, creating a safe space for daily writing. Yeah, so in this chapter, I really talk about
1: three different spaces. The first space is just the physical space of the classroom, which a lot of teachers are rethinking this summer because of COVID precautions. But really thinking about, is my classroom set up for both independence and collaboration? In other words, is there a place students can go to get anything they need for themselves to be a writer? Or do they need to come to the teacher every time they need something? So is there a space for them to be independent? And then is there a space for them to collaborate in whatever way you can with whatever restrictions are in place? If you can get kids together in clusters or partners to be able to talk as they write, before they write, during writing, after writing, really important. So thinking about your physical space as if it belongs to the kids and you're renting space in their space rather than the students are renting space in your classroom. We're outnumbered. So the space needs to work for kids. So that's the first space. And then the second space is just a daily ritual. I have found um, if I exercise every single day, there isn't a day that I wake up and say, oh, I wonder if I should exercise today. It's just what I do every day. Those habits are in place. So if we only have kids write on Tuesdays and Thursdays, it's really hard for them to get in that habit of being a writer. So that daily space of writing, that daily time set aside to write. And then the last space is just a safe emotional space. And this goes back to celebrating the approximations that kids make rather than coming down as the corrector in chief every time there's something wrong. So is this a place where writers feel like I can take a risk? It doesn't have to be perfect. And that starts with us. Are we willing to take a risk with our students? to create
0: that emotional space. I I appreciate the concept of physical space and then time and then emotional space to help kids be in uh, that space. It it reminds me of the concept of uh, making time for daily reading. If we want kids to be great readers, we have to put great books in their hands, and we have to give them time to read those great books instead of assigning books or assigning time to read at home. Right, and you're saying if we want them to write, we give them a t- we give them a space to do it. We give them a time to do it. It's part of our daily routine, uh, and so they think, oh, they get used to it. In the beginning, it's kind of hard, kind of like going to the gym, yep. but at the end, they know this is what we do. Yep, exactly. Can you, can you tell us about your routine of, a, like, what does that look like in in classes you've seen in your class?
1: Yeah, so. Time is the new currency in education, right? So we show what we value by what we give our time to. So it starts at the beginning of the year when I'm planning my daily schedule. So the big rocks go in first. That's daily time to read independently with a mini lesson, daily time to write independently with a mini lesson, daily time to engage in mathematical thinking with with an explicit mini lesson. Those are the big three. And then if I can infuse content into those great, if I have extra time, I can do the content that I need to do, but those are the rocks that get in first. So those are the chunks of time I put in first. And then I look at what I have left for all the other things. Cause if you don't put that time in right away, you're not going to find an extra 45 minutes and be like, Oh, I've got this extra 45 minutes every day. I wonder what we should do. Um, You've got to make the time. You won't find the time
0: we are, um, we have to be intentional with our timing. And so we say the priority is what goes first and those big things go first, and then the small little pebbles and granular things can go in after. Exactly. Yeah. So how do kids write during this time? What does that look like? So typically, it's, and I'm going to speak
1: elementary right now, because I know in middle school and high school, it can be a different with you've got a bell schedule and a shorter chunk of time. But in elementary school, typically, you want to start small. So at the beginning of the year, that independent writing time might only be five minutes and you build up that stamina over time. But you would hope that by the, by the spring, about a 45 minute block of time to write that's broken up with a 10 minute, really short, explicit mini lesson where the teacher shows a mentor text, um, it cracks open his or her thinking to do some modeling and then send the kids off to write. So that's about 10 minutes that leaves you 35 minutes. It's about 20, 25 minutes, maybe even 30 of independent writing while the teacher is walking around conferring, providing that support to individual kids. And then it always ends with a reflection, which is the part that everyone skips. Everyone's like, okay, time for library. Grab your books and line up. But it's important to bring kids back to the carpet if you can, or even just have them turn to a partner. What did you work on today? share your writing with a partner. So it allows kids to be instantly published because they get to share their writing right away. They get to see what a partner is doing. So they have another mentor text and it just kind of brings closure to that chunk of time. Right. So it's typically that that kind of structure that works well.
0: Right. You're talking about the reading, writing workshop model. Yeah. That, that elementary school teachers love and has been really effective. Yeah. Right. I think you're right highlighting the end. like who are we writing for? Are we writing just for us? Are we writing for each other? Are we yes and yes? But that that time to pause. That's where the skills come in. So we we teach a skill in the beginning through the mini lesson. Kids are applying it with their own context, and at the end we're seeing how they're doing it, and they're reflecting on how did I how did I use dialogue today? Yeah, right, exactly. And they say, oh, this is what. Uh, so I know when I when I've used this workshop model, I'll have kids share. But then when they start sharing, they have to share what their partner shared out. And mm. so that's like highlighting a person who's sometimes quiet and not going to share. But someone else yeah. saying, hey, look, I'm re- I, I noticed this intentional act by Chris. Look what he's doing with his dialogue. I want to share mm. it with you. Beautiful. Thanks. Let's talk about your other chapter. Another chapter is talking about how do we expose writers to real readers?
1: So much of what I've seen in K-12 writing classrooms is what Regie Routman calls, who cares writing. It doesn't go anywhere or do anything. The audience is the teacher, the purpose is a grade, and then we wonder why kids are not motivated to do the hard work of writing. I know myself, I would not write just because I enjoy writing. In fact, writing is really a difficult task for me. I have lots of different tricks I use that I outline in the book. Um, I wanted to call this book Confessions of a Reluctant Writer because I myself am the chiefest of reluctant writers if you would use that term. But um, what I find is I would not do the hard work of writing unless I honored and respected the audience I was writing for and I knew someone might read it and find it helpful, but so often kids just write for a grade. Cause it's an assignment and it's motivating for about four kids in our class and unmotivating for the rest. So in the real world, we write to people for particular purposes. So the goal of that chapter is really, I think it's the number one thing that if you made a, a tweak in your classroom, you'd see the biggest bang for your buck is when you say, we're writing these instructional posters, where could they go? Like, what are you, and I've done this with a first grade classroom that I outlined in the book. I wrote one on um, doing your own laundry so I could put it in my laundry room for my own kids, do their own dang laundry. But other kids got to choose their own things. So someone did kickball and someone did how to choose a book and someone did how to care for a pet. They chose their own topics. And then at the end, I just said, who needs to see your poster? And the energy in the room just exploded. You know, this needs to go in the library. I need to laminate it and it needs to go on the playground. So they could see who needed this. And then all of a sudden they were like, wait, I, I need to fix some things. And all of a sudden they were motivated to revise and edit right. because they knew it was going to an audience that mattered. Right. It's key.
0: Right. It's authentic. And I, yep. I think you said it's the number one piece that changes instruction. And I think it's the number one thing that I don't do in my own writing instruction. As a social studies teacher, I'm thinking, Okay, grade 10, World War II, you're going to have to write about a report about uh, one of the wars during World War II, like a significant event during World War II. Like, no one's going to read that, but right. we try to structure it in like, you're going to create a museum, what kind of writing you would do for each of the displays. Right? Beautiful.
1: So, right. Beautiful. Just even that tweak there gives them a little bit more of authentic purpose. Right. So it's rigor and relevance. It's, right. it's difficult work, but it's relevant to life. Right. Yeah.
0: I think this is the hardest part of uh, how do we make text, and this is for the secondary teachers in particular, how do we make text in science, in social studies, in, in math, in drama, how do we make it pertinent to kids? I, and I guess this goes back to your answer of let's look at real models. That's right. Like there are scientists that write things. There are yep. artists that write things. There are restaurant owners that write reviews. Like let's look yeah, at examples. Exactly.
1: And I always and I walk teachers through this in the book. But my first question is, where do I see this kind of writing in the real world? That's a good place to start. Right. But the, here's the thing. And this is for secondary teachers. If you are thinking, I don't see this writing in the real world, it should be like a huh. I wonder if I had to rethink this assignment because we've just been doing the same thing for decades now, but the but the text out there is changing. So kids are writing, they're writing blogs, they're writing playlists, they're writing reviews, they're writing comments. Um, so we need to think like, here's the standard I need to reach. Where do I see this kind of writing in the world and how can I engage my students in this work?
0: Right. It's it's saying teachers we need to look outside to the real world to see how we can bring it into the into the class world. Yep. Yeah. And that's the authentic part. Yep, for sure. Can we talk about another chapter which is talking about exp- uh, offering student choice?
1: Wow, we love choice, don't we? Like if you go to a coffee shop anywhere in the world and you just like stand and listen to people order like, wow, we really need choice. Um, choice is, is empowering. And um, I think energy is, de- is determined on how much choice students have. Very few of us are going to feel energized and enthused if someone says, sit here, use this pen and this paper, and write about this topic for this long. Like I challenge teachers, like give it a whirl and see how, see how energized you are. But even offering kids a choice of like, where do you want to sit? Are you like on the floor with a clipboard kind of writer? Do you want to be in a beanbag? Do you want to type? Do you want to handwrite? Do you want to use the, You know, choosing your utensil. Um, this is a very, this is the pen I always use when I write. I'm particular, I like this pen and it's hard for me to write with other pens. So we as adults understand this, but when kids come into our classrooms, it's like, oh no, no, we are making all the decisions. Right. So offering kids choice, choice of writing utensil, choice of topic when when appropriate, um, choice of where to sit um, can really be motivating for
0: kids. Right. And I'm, I'm gonna swing back to Let me pause. I think when we create uh, and we allow students, when we encourage students to create their own rituals around writing, because it it seems like you you have your own ritual. You have your own pen that you write with, right? You have Mm -hmm. your own space that you write with. Do you have a space that you write with? I do. Tell us about your space. So my space is
1: in my office. I, I wrote a book once in my bed and that did not go well. My neck was like, my laptop was on my But I thought, this is comfortable. I want to be relaxed. Um, But that did not work. But I have, I have certain music that I listen to. I have a certain tea. Um, So I listen to music from the Calm app, either like a focus. I love Calm app. Love, love, love. Um, Or I have just absolute silence. Another one of my writing rituals, which is super helpful, I'm going to pass along is I just take a really long walk with my dog, with my iPhone and headphones, and I just talk about the topic that I'm writing about that day. And then I just do a voice memo. And then when I come home that afternoon, I just play the voice memo back and type. And then once I've got the text on there, then I can start to revise and move things around. For me, it's easy to talk, but it's really hard to write. And so for students who are learning additional languages, that's a big a big thing as well is like, put your pencil down and just try to say it, and then try to get it down, right? Um, Because sometimes it's overwhelming to go straight to composition. Um, Yeah, so giving kids choice of that, like finding what system works for you? What do you need? Well, you've already
0: spoken now twice, at least very specifically to language learners or teachers of multilinguals, because you talked about um, recording First, talking about it first, so it's when we talk, it's the doorway to writing, and and so, let multilingual sometimes stare at a blank page and like I don't know what to write about, I don't know how to conquer this white beast, right? Or how do we even start to address this? And yet you're saying, well, start with speaking, and I and you already said something in the beginning of the podcast. You talked about trans and I was like, ooh, yeah, she knows, <laughs> she's in the know. <laughs> Well, it's so powerful.
1: What you're what we're really talking about is oral rehearsal. Yes. And it was something I learned probably in my third book. Um, I kept saying to my husband, I can speak to teachers all day. Like I don't, that just feels very natural to me, but I go to sit down and write and I just freeze. And I think it's because for me, I was overcoming a lot of self doubt, but also I just felt like my writing needed to sound writerly. Right. What I've actually found is it's the teachers appreciate a conversational tone in my writing, at least. So my husband's like, you need to just record yourself when you're speaking. Well, that's awkward when I'm presenting to teachers. So I'm like, I'm just gonna walk and talk like I'm talking, and then then transcribe that. So I think for students learning additional languages, I know I speak this much Japanese, but it, and it'd be almost impossible <laughs> for me to write it. But if I could say it. First, and then take it word by word and try to get it down. I think that might feel more manageable than the white beast you described. Yeah.
0: So, then we're encouraging kids to say, uh, use your home language to to write first. So, it might be speaking in your home language, recording it out loud, or it might be just writing in English, writing in a home language, brainstorming in a home language, and then eventually we'll get to writing in English. Right. Right. Exactly. Can you t- talk more about translanguaging in writing? Yeah, yeah.
1: so it's a it's something that I'm learning about just in the last six months or so, but I'm starting to collect more mentor texts that use translanguaging, that use English, but also bring in Spanish or, or uh, Japanese or whatever language the author speaks. And to show kids mentor texts that use translanguaging, so powerful because they can see that this is an asset. This isn't something to hide from. If I'm multilingual, I can bring all of my linguistic repertoire to my writing and it can be really powerful. Right. So I think making sure that your mentor texts, especially if you're teaching students who are learning additional languages, making sure your mentor texts have some trans as well, so they can see that whole linguistic repertoire. Right.
0: I, I love that because it's kind of like saying, um, we highlight kids and we highlight their cultures by saying yes, because this goes beyond the flags and festivals. Like, oh yes, we'll just have we'll just celebrate your month once, and we'll have your family bring food, and it never again appears in the class. But when we have a mentor text, like I still remember opening up Inside Out and Back Again. It's by is Tan Tanha, and she had a she had a few sentences in Vietnamese or a few words, and I was like, I paused and I was like, wait. I'm reading an English book, yet it's trans-languaging because there are words in Vietnamese, and I felt so proud. Yeah. Now if kids see, because oftentimes kids from marginalized backgrounds feel like their language is marginalized as well. That's so right. Now when their languages are appearing in the mentor text we're using, they no longer feel marginalized, they no longer feel like the other. Absolutely. Right. Very, very powerful. <laughs> Let's move to another topic. Let's talk about a healthy perspective on writing conventions because you're talking to teachers of language learners.
1: Conventions. Oh, they're so tricky. So when I use the word conventions, it's anything that a professional proofreader would attend to. So spelling, grammar, punctuation, it's all those things that make writing readable and conventions exist out of respect for the reader. We want the reader to be able to focus on the content and not be distracted by the conventional mistakes. So conventions matter. The problem that I've seen in a lot of classrooms is an overemphasis on conventions. And always when I talk about conventions, I feel like teachers walk away saying, oh, she said, don't worry about conventions. Not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't overemphasize conventions. Conventions are one slice of the writing pie, but there's all these other slices like content, organization, fluency, voice, personality on the page. Those things matter as well so making sure that your lessons are balanced so that not every single lesson is about conventions and then making sure that when you talk to kids not every single conversation is about the conventions on the page so that means sometimes you're going to notice oh this child isn't using periods yet and you're going to kind of tuck that in your head or you might even jot it down on your conferring notebook that you carry around if you do that but to address it with a kid every time. So if you address conventions with the kid every time you talk to him, he's gonna think this is all that matters. Right. And it's not, it's one part of writing. Right. So it's really striking that healthy balance of still teaching it, absolutely, but keeping it balanced with other things that you need to teach in writing. Right.
0: I wrote down the the phrase, a convention helps us communicate, but it's not communication. Mm. Right. So totally, we need it. We need a full stop. We yep. need to know some in English some words that are capitalized. Uh, yep. We need to have a apostrophe because that's part of the, the idea of things belonging to others. Yep. Uh, but w- if we overemphasize that, then we stop the commun- We might hamper or uh, stifle the communication, and that's what we're trying to do. Writers communicate, right? and and conventions help, but they can't be overemphasized. So.
1: Absolutely. And I think it's helpful for kids to understand that not everything needs to be conventionally perfect. If I write a grocery list, the audience is me. The purpose is to help me remember, it doesn't matter if I know how to spell asparagus, if I can read it, I'll get I'll grab the asparagus. Um, But if I'm writing an email to a principal, then I might want to double check and just make sure everything's looking okay. But sometimes well meaning teachers expect that everything that students write should be perfect, but we don't have that expectation in our own lives as writers.
0: Right. And I think we, this is the part where we're talking about social justice. In the past few years, or really decades, we're talking about standard English. or So there is, there is an othering of even English, because I remember when I was in New Orleans, yes, you're raising your hands for the people who are on the podcast, I remember going to New Orleans and a student speaking to me and in Creole in English Creole and I was like I'm really sorry I don't I don't speak Creole like no that was English and I was like oh my goodness and now I look back years later I'm like that was really inappropriate because I mean it was good it was well intentioned but I didn't realize that I only heard English in one way and I only valued English in one standard but now when we just like trans language when we like when we encourage kids to change language, when we encourage kids to use their language they would use, let's say that they're writing about a barbershop. We want them to use the language they would use in a barbershop to be part of the text. So it's not saying standard English is this way. Standard English is uh, uh barbershop language is not appreciated. It's not valued. We're saying the context dictates the language we use.
1: Yes. So you're going to change the way you angle a piece depending on who's reading it. Right. And this goes for conventions, but this also goes for content. I tell a story in my trainings. Um, my youngest son, Brady, was born with a cleft lip. And I could write about cleft lips, but who I'm writing to is going to change how I angle that story. So if I'm writing that piece to Brady about his cleft lip, I'm going to say, God, put a notch on your lips so that when we went into the nursery, we knew right away which baby was ours. I'm going to angle that piece one way. But if I'm writing a letter to Peyton Manning because he got me through the first six hours because he also had a cleft lip, so we looked at his lip over and over again, then that I'm, it's still the same topic, but I'm angling that piece completely differently because I'm writing a letter to Peyton. Or if I'm writing a blog to other moms whose babies are born less than cosmetically perfect, It's the same topic, but I'm going to angle the content, the conventions, the structure completely differently. So conventions and content are all contextualized based on who's going to be reading the piece. Right. And And conventions are part of that too.
0: And so the language you use with Brady, and the language you your son and the language you would use with Pete Manning, though the topic is the same, they're not less valued. That's and right. that's what we're saying, we're having kids, yeah. we're having, we're telling teachers, I think we're on the same length, wavelength, when you work with multilinguals, don't quick, go quick to correcting slang language, or we, we quote unquote slang, or home language. It's, it's honoring the context that that language is birthed from.
1: Absolutely. And some of the grammar that we use feels very othering even just like someone said to me recently well it needs to be a prepositional blah 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 blah. and i'm like i have no idea what you mean so i felt very othered and i'm like i've written like eight books but i don't know the word for that but even just the language we use can be very much i know something you don't know and it becomes this power dynamic just let's all just help each other be community of writers and bring what we can bring without right, using right. so much language that way
0: Well, now, you know, I'm going to christen you uh, teacher of multilinguals because you keep speaking to the political side of us because we talk about educating can be a political act and the way that we other and the way that we accept uh, others through the policies we put in education. This happens. We can say you're valued. You're not welcomed. This language is valued. Uh, That language is not valued. And so we do that throughout teaching practice and intentionally. Yeah, agreed. Let's talk about the last part is about assessments and identity and assessments. Yeah, I didn't want to
1: write this chapter. Um, I didn't want to write a chapter on assessment at all. Um, But after some discussion with my editor, I knew I needed to write it and it actually became my favorite chapter. The reason I didn't want to write a chapter on assessment is because assessment is a word that's kind of been hijacked. In the last 20 years, it's come to mean a lot of things that I don't think it ever was intended to mean. So when I use the word assessment, I'm thinking two questions. What is this writer doing really well? And what can I support this writer in doing next? So I try to simplify it. But the way that we assess students is going to be creating their own writing identity. So, yeah, so the way we assess students becomes their writing identity. So when I was in school, I would create a piece of writing, turn it in. The teacher would perform an autopsy on it <laughs> with her red pen, and she'd hand it back with a grade. That assessment helped to create an identity of who I saw myself as a writer not a positive identity so we know now that's not assessment and that doesn't work but assessment where you come alongside the child and you approach their writing with marveled curiosity
0: Mm.
1: and you say what is this writer trying to do what's the good work i can get behind and then what's one thing that i could nudge them to try so that they can improve even more so part of that writing assessment, rethinking it, is what I shared with the mentor text. Starting out by helping kids identify what is quality writing? What is, what is my goal? What am I trying to do? And that's looking at mentors and seeing what's there, creating a list of what we notice, seeing a teacher do his or her own writing, and then giving it a try. Right.
0: Yeah, I, I think assessments can also cause anxiety for students because there's again it's an evaluation it is an evaluation of what they do but I love how you're framing it as you're saying we do have to evaluate kids that's part of our job description Uh, but it doesn't have to happen in the way we often see it like the way you described you sign a writing task kids give us work Uh, we then autopsy it I love it dissect it Um, and then you say here you go here's your finished piece Uh, Here's my evaluation, but instead we are now um, giving formative feedback consistently throughout. How do you do that when you have a hundred kids?
1: So difficult, right? So there's a whole bunch of ideas, but I do want to highlight another book. It's called The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop by Felicia, I can't remember her last name. I will get it. Okay. Um, And it talks about teaching writers' workshop in the college setting, in the university setting. Um, But the way that she does assessment is also really fascinating for teachers of any grade to think about. But it's really a co-collaboration between the student and the teacher. So the student also is saying, here's where I'm doing well as a writer. Here's what I'm still working on. So it's more of a it's not a power differential where I'm up here and I will determine what is good writing. If we're all looking at mentor texts, if we're all creating a list of features, if I'm writing as well, then we're all knowing what quality writing is and what we're going for. If it, and I do say in the book, if you're using rubrics with kids, that's cool. Make sure the kids get the rubric and they get to score your piece first. So it's only fair that if you're evaluating theirs, they need to be able to evaluate yours. I think that's just a, a really interesting move that I've done in classrooms and it's changed the whole dynamic in a really positive way.
0: And the book by Felicia Rose Chavez is called the Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom.
1: It's a brilliant, brilliant book. Mine is highlighted and written all over. It's a very important book, even if you don't teach at the university level,
0: right? Well, I'm going to need to have her on the podcast. Yes, for (laughs) sure. So this brings us to the end of the podcast. Is there anything that uh, we should talk about that I didn't get to talk about you didn't get to talk about
1: I think the whole goal of this book is just we want kids to fall in love with writing, we want kids to be joyfully literate human beings that see writing as a way to engage in civil discourse engage in social change, um, express themselves, right. honor themselves and their culture and their communities. I want kids to see writing with all the power that it has and then in, and in approach writing not with a kind of suspicious side glance, but really embrace it as part of a joyfully literate life. That's my hope.
0: Right. Right. Because it's kind of like there's the the, the concept of function functioning illiterate. Like yep. there are people who can read and write, but they choose not to. Yep. There's there's a, there's a statistic that I'm so not going to get right, but a huge percentage of people after they have finished high school or college, they don't read anymore. Right. Right. And we don't yeah. want that. Right?
1: No, we want kids to see that as a rich part of their life. Right. It's up to us. Teachers, I, kids don't have the um, power to change right. classrooms. We right. do.
0: Right. We yeah. Do. Because of the people we're putting into the future. Yep. absolutely so I always end my podcast with a with an activity called traffic light teaching and so it's red light is something you ask teachers to stop doing in terms of writing workshop practice Uh, a yellow light is something you ask teachers to start doing when they get to a yellow light they kind of start slowing down some start going faster and then a green light is something you ask teachers to keep on doing that they're already doing isn't this a fun one awesome yeah Okay,
1: so red light, do you start with red or do you typically start with green? Red light, please stop writing on kids' work. You can stop that today. Um, Little post-it notes work or comments in the margin if you're using Google Docs, but please don't write on students' work ever. It's never a good idea. Um, Yellow light, start doing teacher modeling. If there's one thing that would change your classroom like tomorrow is to engage in the writing experience yourself. In front of kids, so instead of assigning writing, you're actually showing them how you're going to engage in the work as well. You'll learn so much more about teaching writing by actually engaging in writing yourself. So that definitely start doing that, and then keep on exposing kids to fantastic literature. Keep having a reverence for the best in children's literature, fiction and nonfiction posters and brochures, but keep exposing kids to lots of great print as readers. And that's going to carry over in their writing. Right.
0: Can I ask you another final final question of of your things? You talked about modeling as like something really powerful. Can you talk about how can we do that? What's your approach to modeling?
1: Yeah, so I have a beginning trumpet player in the house, which is awful. But I cannot help him with trumpet. Why? Because I don't play trumpet. So I can't help him learn to play the trumpet because I don't trumpet myself. So, so many teachers of writing try to teach writing, but they don't actually write themselves. So it would be as effective as me trying to teach trumpeting to someone when I don't trumpet myself. So the act of writing in front of your kids does so many things. It helps the kids see Um, an actual process. So you're not modeling perfection, you're modeling the mess that's in your head. So you're modeling your thinking so they can see, oh, all writers struggle. It doesn't just like someone doesn't drop pixie dust and like ideas come out. Um, They see that internal struggle. You also can engage in Thinking of through your own challenges in front of kids, but you're also setting the tone for the this classroom. Like I'm going to take a risk and I'm going to show you my messy thinking as I try to plan this. It might not be perfect, but here's how I'm going to start. Then that sets the tone for the class. Like oh, this is one of those classrooms where it's okay to try stuff. But she's going to go first or he's going to go first. So when you're modeling, you don't have to write the whole piece in front of kids but just kind of maybe getting them started. And then the next day, like, what would I do next? And so like you're one step ahead of kids, but by the end of the unit, by the end of the assignment, you have a finished piece right along with the kids that can be evaluated, that can be shared, that can be used as a mentor text the next year. So you're engaging in the same work. Never ask students to do something they haven't seen you do first. That's basically the bottom
0: line. I think when we do, when we model, we help make thinking visible. Yep. And when kids can see, they feel more confidence. And when they feel more confidence, they'll have more competence. Absolutely. Beautifully said. Well, Kelly, you have been a a guide for us throughout this process. Uh, We hope that teachers get all of your other seven books. Thank you for contributing to the field. And you are christened a teacher of multilinguals without even knowing it.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a joy to be with you. Thank you for all you
0: do. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things at work and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Wasn't this such a fun and inspiring interview with Kelly? She is like my new bestie. She led us into her life and her classes with her stories. I love how these strategies are so practical, and in her own words, no fuss. Kelly struck a chord with me every single time she talked about acid based writing. As language specialists, that is our North Star. On the same lines, we talked about taking a more holistic perspective of conventions. Yes, they are important, but we also have to make room for conventions that are outside American Standard English for example if you have a student and this student wrote about his uncle having been bitten by a snake but saying my uncle was snake bit don't correct that instead honor and celebrate it as a form of English used in a particular context this is the social justice piece because it recognizes that students have a voice and their voices are worth hearing through their writing. Kelly, thank you for writing a no-fuss book for teachers of writing, which we all are. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode.